Hey everyone, welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. My name's Matt Wakeling and this is the show that I produce in Sydney, Australia. Thank you so much for joining me for episode number 180. Now today I'm joined by the amazing Stuart Gerard, aka Stu G from Delirious and Michael W. Smith. We had a great conversation. Spoke to Stu in his home studio in Nashville and we'll get to that interview very soon. Today's episode is brought to you by Fretboard Biology, the comprehensive online guitar course put together by Joe Elliott. Now, Joe is not only a fantastic guitar player, he draws on his years of experience as the ex-head of guitar at the Guitar Institute of Technology and also at the McNally Smith Music College. Here's a few words from Joe about the course. If you're tired of wading through hundreds of random guitar videos and just want to become a better player, Fretboard Biology is your answer. Fretboard Biology is a self-paced, college-level program that will give you the right instruction, in the right amounts, and in the right order. You'll learn the same information I taught to thousands of other guitar players over 30 years of teaching in top music colleges. If you want to make real progress with your guitar playing, then sign up for a free 7-day trial at fretboardbiology.com. My thanks to Joe and the entire Fretboard Biology team. They've been great sponsors of the show, so please check out their stuff. Alrighty. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast for a little while, you might know a little bit about me in that I've been in music education for many years. I've been playing professionally for many years as well. Most weekends you'll find me in a pub or a club somewhere playing a gig, which I totally love. And also that I've been a church musician uh, since my late teens, and that's been a huge part of my life and continues to be, really. So when I got to speak to Stu G, I loved talking about all the stuff you'd usually hear on the Guitar Speak podcast, like parts, um, tones, gear, influences, all that kind of stuff. But it was also really cool as well to talk about the idea of corporate worship and the many ways you can express that and the many venues you can take that to as well. All right, let's jump straight in. My conversation with Stu G. Stu Gerard, welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. Hey, thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. Oh, man, it's our honour to have you on the, on the show. I've been uh, following you as a musician uh, since the fairly early delirious days, uh, since King of Fools, pretty much, um, till wow. now. So it's a, it's a thrill to meet you and, and have you on the show. Thank you. Yeah, God, that's a long time ago now. Yeah, yeah, there's been a lot of... A lot of guitar notes played in that interim that <laughs> we'll try and talk a bit about today. Now, you're in yeah. Nashville these days. How long have you been living there now? Yeah, so we moved to Nashville in 2010. When I say we, that's my wife and my two daughters. Mm-hmm. So 2010, we uh, we moved over here. That was a year after Delirious finished. Yeah, And uh, I'd spent some time um, in the last year that Delirious was touring 2008 2009 um i would kind of tag a few days on if we were in america and i'd come to nashville or la or wherever and and just kind of stay connected with people that i'd met in the industry and um it wasn't long before i got a uh got a few sessions and i got got a publishing deal and so um it worked out for us to live here uh to save all the travel yeah, sure. That's a pretty exciting shift after um, Delirious, and I'd love to talk about Delirious at some stage yeah. too. But you already had some connections and some some opportunities in the states. 
yeah, you know, um, whatever you do, it's kind of like about relationship, isn't it? So, um, you know, over the years, you kind of meet people, whether they're record label folks or you make friends in other bands and um, uh, and meet songwriters and all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I'm really yeah, grateful that um, I met a few people and, uh, uh, you know, we we forged friendships and, um, yeah, it, it kind of led to living here. That's very cool. Now, by the time you get to Nashville, you've already got a very well-formed guitar voice, but I guess the thing with Nashville, the story is if you shake a tree there, you'll get 10 guitar players falling out, and they're all really, yeah. really good. Has any, has any, yeah. anything of Nashville rubbed off on you in your own playing? Well, I think so. You know, um, firstly, you, you kind of, you have to assimilate to the... Uh, environment that you're in you know and so uh, like one simple kind of example of that was that I didn't know the Nashville number system uh, okay yep. on, on in charts you know before I moved here and so um, you know that was like learning a different language in some ways you know yep. turn up for a session and uh, have a chart that you can't really read and put in front of you <laughs> that kind of was in at the deep end you know yep. so uh, um yeah, I learned on the go, as it were. And um, but you know, I think that what one thing it's taught me, moving to Nashville, like you know, the 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 sort of almost twenty years that we were doing Delirious, and we were just doing our own thing. You know, it was our own music, yeah. and I was writing those songs and th- that music with Martin predominantly, and um, uh, it's a very different kind of scenario than it is when you come somewhere and you and you become more of a sideman or more of a session player you know where you have to um do what the producer wants you know so Mm -hmm. um uh that i i think it reminded me that you know to always have the kind of posture of a, a student you know, you like you never stop learning, and so and that's been the case. You know, so more more recently, well, I mean, uh, actually, for, uh, ten years I've been playing with Michael W. Smith, yeah, um, a, a Christian artist here in Nashville. So I I play live with him, and so uh, to be able to learn how to play the uh, he's got some big songs like Place in This World, Secret Ambition, mm-hmm. um, and the incredible guitar player Dan Huff yes. um, played those solos and uh, and played on those records. So to have to kind of learn those, to be able to do them every night um, has, uh, like, to be honest, it's kicked my butt, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, But that's what I mean. Like, um, I, I don't know that I like the feeling of, like, being uh, stretched and put under pressure, but I like the feeling of it, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Like, sure. I like the results yeah. of it. It's a bit like working out, you know. Uh-huh. No one wants to go out for a run in the morning but uh, you or work out, but you feel the benefit of it later. And so, um, yeah, it's the, the, there are situations that I get in, whether that's in the studio or playing live, um, where... You know, perhaps it's a genre or a uh, a style that you that that you don't haven't really mastered yet. You know, and so um, it just pushes you to uh, to become a better player and a more more rounded player. And so that's what I uh, am very grateful for in terms of the Nashville scene here. Mm-hmm. Excellent. What else can you tell me about working with Michael W. Smith? Because um, yeah, that was a when you got to Nashville. Obviously, that was one of the big 
big gigs that um, kept you in the States and helped cement yeah. you. Yeah. So, I mean, for a start, he's been um, a, uh, you know, he's been making records since the early 80s. And um, he is like to, to work with him. I mean, it's an honor in all kinds of ways, like the, the fact that he's a legend uh, for a start, but, um, and, and become a good friend, one of the kindest people that I know. But um, he's just such an incredible musician. You know, um, obviously he's known for his songs and, and he sings those, but like when you hear him sit at the piano and play, um, it's quite amazing, like the depth of, uh, of music that is in him. And um, yeah, it's so inspiring. So I would say that's one of the. Uh, the, the greatest things from, from working with Michael is that the, the level of musicianship with him, what he hears, um, you know, perhaps you don't think that he can hear you when you make a mistake or whatever, but he knows, he knows for certain. You know? <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, it's amazing. And um, yeah, a, a kind man and uh, an incredible musician. Wonderful. Now, Stu, on your website, the, the mast is Stu Gerard musician, author, collaborator, and yeah. I'd like to talk about that word collaboration. Um, that seems to be a big part of your career. I mean, you've talked about doing sessions, yeah. being a sideman, being part of the, the Delirious um, yeah. crew there. One particular yeah. project uh, in recent years is the Beatitudes project, yeah. which was an album, but then there was a podcast and there was artworks and yeah. uh, book, you, your book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh-huh. How did that yeah. evolve in such a massive multimedia project? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for a start, you know, the collaboration thing. Um, you know, just looking at Delirious, you know, Delirious was a sum of five parts. You know, for the five five of us in the band, um, and beyond that, you know, Tony, our manager, he was like a sixth member, and uh, you know, helped us with all the business stuff, but. Um, so collaboration really has always been at the forefront of my mind. Like I'm very aware that I'm better when I'm with other people. And, um, so, and, and that seems to be in every area of, of my life, you know, whether that's songwriting, you know, or, or just in terms of being with family, whatever, I'm a better person when I'm working with other people. And, um, so collaboration's always been a thing, uh, especially in those delirious years, you know, like we were carrying one big vision of like making the the best music we possibly could and playing the world and stuff like that. But it was the five of us that made it what it was, you know. So um, over those years, um, uh, being a Christian and having a certain kind of uh, attraction to the, the Sermon on the Mount, um, uh, it, I had always been really intrigued by the Beatitudes, um, which are these sayings at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, like these announcements of blessing. And uh, they're kind of like words that you perhaps learn in Sunday school as a kid or whatever, and uh, they they can become very familiar. But uh, when the band finished, so I thought that we, we would be... Uh, I thought the Delirious would make a Beatitudes project. I thought it would be a, a record, right? Um, there's eight themes in there, like nice size for eight songs uh-huh. and uh, on a vinyl, you know. But um, uh, uh, we never got around to it. And um, in the process of Delirious finishing and, and then being in this kind of transitional space of uh, you know, not knowing if my best work is behind me and not, and not beginning something new, you know, it's kind of a, it was a, it was kind of a 
depressing place for me. And uh, uh, but it was in that sort of space that I started to understand the the Beatitudes as an announcement of of where God is and uh, and and what is blessing and the invitation to kind of you know pour into that. You know because I think that you know we have the the idea of blessing all wrong in terms of you know it's whether we get success or um, you know like perhaps we take on a project and we think oh god bless this you know but um actually the beatitudes tell us what god is already blessing and invites us to push into that so like the poor the, those who grieve those who mourn you know those who are hungry and thirsty for justice so um and it goes on i mean I, this is about guitar so i won't kind of bore everyone with the uh, the details but um you know in terms of collaboration it was about music so i asked there's there's uh, about 13 different songwriters on that that record uh, people that i asked to write songs with me people like michael w like amy grant martin smith from delirious mm -hmm. hillsong united uh matt Marr, like all kinds of folks came and, and helped me write songs for it and um and that kind of collaboration and that collaborative spirit kind of is all through the project. So I'm telling other people's stories on the film and in the book. And then, you know, we, we've put all the resources um, into an online e-course that people can uh, can go and see that all in one place online. So, um, yeah, so that, that was very collaborative. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm still of the mind that I'm better when I'm doing stuff with other people, even if I come up with the idea. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And um, I mean, the idea of putting those scriptures, um, expressing them through so many different ways is a very powerful way to, yeah. to do yeah. that. And I wanted to do it through like real current lens, you know, a real 21st century lens. And so, you know, uh, with the theme of mercy, I, I met a woman who'd been on death row for 27 years and um, in uh, peacemakers like blessed other peacemakers we based that whole chapter in the holy land in the middle of the palestinian israeli conflict and you know so uh, i wanted to kind of put a lens on it that um, people could understand the context so when you talk about delirious and that idea of collaboration the five of you yeah it is a pretty extraordinary story how you're a band birthed out of a local ministry in the united kingdom meeting was it what once yeah. a month or something that's right yep yeah, it was a youth worship event called Cutting Edge, and um, it was started by um, the drummer, Stu Smith, and uh, Tim, who was the keyboard player, his wife, Becca. They they were kind of youth leaders at, at a church, and they started this event. The idea was to, um, you know, create a worship night um, in a, with, with, you know, using the music and the style that people were into at the time, you know. So... Um, uh, so that that's where it was birthed, and uh, you know, I I kind of came on scene a year or so after they started, and um, you know, uh, we kind of all gelled together, and um, and you know, I remember uh, that, that there were certain songs that that people still sing in church, you know, people like um, I could sing "Your Love Forever" and "Did You Feel the Mountains Tremble" and stuff like that, and. Mm. You know, when we uh, were writing, when we were playing, did you feel the mountains tremble? You know, the the essence of that was um, open up the doors and let the music play. You know, um, so the idea of like not keeping what we have discovered and what we found and and our and our praise, if you like, in the within the four walls of the church, but to you know take it out from those nights into our families and our workplaces and colleges and wherever we we are. And um, we felt like uh, that, 
you know, not to be, uh, if we were to do that as, as a band, then we would need to take our music out and put it on the high street and put it and see if we could get it on the radio, you know, and, uh, you know, there's not a huge Christian music scene, uh, in terms of the business or there wasn't at the time in, in, in the UK. And, um, and so we just kind of went on this mission to kind of, you know, write songs and take our music and, and get it on the radio. And, um, and so we ended up um, having five top 20s in the UK pop chart. We had a number two on the radio in Germany. And uh, we, we, you know, we got to remember the context. Like we were this, these guys that were playing in church. Yeah. And uh, we went on tour with Bon Jovi. Yeah. And we, <laughs> went, uh, we uh, played Glastonbury Festival and places like that across Europe. And... Um, and then, uh, you know, all, at the same time, we were singing the same songs that we were doing in, in ch- at church events. And, um, you know, the cutting edge thing kind of blew up and uh, we ended up doing these um, uh, events on the beachfront. We lived on a seaside, in a seaside town called Littlehampton in, in West Sussex on the south coast. And there's this big green in front of the beach. And we and, you know, I think the last time that we did a, a beachfront event, we had 10,000 people there. And um, uh, so something was going on and yeah. uh, we were kind of, you know, capitalizing on that. And we ended up going full time. Uh, we gave up our jobs and thought perhaps we could do music full time. And, um, and and it was at that point that we called ourselves delirious. And, uh, and we, we made an album, King of Fools. And, uh, you know, we released singles off that into the charts and did little tours of the HMVs and Virgin mega stores uh-huh. around the country. And uh, um, it was um, amazing times, you know, and uh, our fan base kind of, you know, got us in the charts. And uh, it was it was really amazing times because, uh, you know, you, if you cut us in half, you know, we'd we'd uh, we'd bleed worship, you know, so um, uh that was the aim of what we're doing was we're trying to, you know, write songs that pointed people towards God, you know. So I saw you guys a bunch of times um, in, in Sydney yeah. and yeah, it always, it was always a really interesting mix of, I don't, I don't know if I'm speaking out of turn, but like big rock and roll show um, mm. that could easily morph into worship. I don't know if, I didn't, yeah. I don't even know if morph is the right word. But it didn't feel like a church yeah. service, but it felt like you could just start worshiping yeah. at any stage. Does I don't know if yeah. that even makes yeah. sense. Yeah, no. So that was, um, I mean, that was what it was like. You know, we we never we tried not to talk about, um, you know, looking at rock and roll and worship as two separate things. You yeah. know, like um, it 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 was always, you know, the idea was that it was always one big thing, and so that was. Uh, it wasn't even really ever talked about. It's just, it's just what it was, you know, we weren't going to try and separate the sacred and the secular, you know, and, uh, because everything is, uh, sacred. Yes. <laughs> so, um, uh, so that's what it was. And, um, yeah, we, we used to like playing loud and, uh, uh, but it was really all for that experience of, uh, you know, we wanted to create experiences for people to encounter something that was bigger than themselves, you know, yeah. and bigger than us. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, um, yeah. And it, as I say, what, what I did, it felt like a totally natural experience. I should add that as well. 
Like I'm not saying it right. felt like you were consciously shifting gears. So as you say, you were just presenting yeah. yourselves and um, people were engaging at whatever level they were yeah. at, I guess. Um, yeah, which is cool. I think, you know, uh, we didn't really know what we were doing. I think that was one <laughs> of the authentic things about yeah, it. You yeah. know, um, in some ways we were quite naive to um, to it. We just had a we had a sense and a vision to just you know take it as big as we could um and uh and travel the world doing it this episode is brought to you by fretboard biology a comprehensive online guitar course put together by joe elliott ex-head of guitar at the guitar institute of technology and the mcnally smith college of music I was one of the beta testers for the course and can say as a music educator, I was really impressed by the logical sequence of learning. The course has also been endorsed by players such as Brett Garson and Greg Cock. For more details, check out the links in our show notes. I remember being in a, a, you know, a huge indoor stadium in Sydney, um, 20,000 people all singing at the top of their lungs um, like majesty. And I had a little theory, I thought... You know, you guys come from the land of football stadiums, and as a kid watching the football or the soccer, as a lot of people call it in Australia and the states, I guess, um, who might be listening, um, yeah, and you'd hear these crowds singing on on TV. I didn't know what that sound was for a long yeah. time, and it was the crowd singing. Um, it seemed yeah. like you guys came from the land of stadium singing. Um, it seemed like you guys right. were the right people to bring that because that was part of your culture. Yeah, you know, I, there's a couple of things there. Firstly, um, like we were tapping into something that was um, that was happening not just with us, but with other folks from the UK. So there, there was at the same time. That, I mean, I guess you just call it a wave, you know, mm. the, the, and we we managed to catch it, but um, so did the the guys at Soul Survivor, and you know, so Matt Redman and Tim Hughes and those those fellas. You know, so when we all and, and and just before us, there was people like Noel Richards and Graham Kendrick. Yes, you know, yeah. who were kind of setting us up or setting that up. You know, and and in fact, Noel Richards had that vision for the the Champion of the World event at Wembley Stadium. To kind of to your exact point, you know, his thing was, you know, we see every week, every year, these stadiums full of people, kind of, you know, praising man. What would it be like if we? Um, or praising the achievements of man, what would it be like if we filled a stadium and, and filled it with people who are singing the praise of God, you know? And so, uh, um, but every time I would go into a football stadium or into a cathedral, I would have the same feeling, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, of of like people uh, going to these places and singing or seeking God or, you know, whatever. And um, uh, so I guess, you know, I guess you're right. But I was very aware, you know, that um, that we were just joining with like, you know, there's a bit in the Bible about there's a cloud of witnesses, you know, uh, uh, saints and angels, like people that have gone before. And uh, um, and so there was very much a, a feeling of like we were joining with a with a crowd of people um that had gone before and, and so this sort of football stadium thing and the and the that sort of idea of cathedrals and big kind of churches that have been around for centuries you know it, it kind of makes sense that 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 feeling comes across you know 
uh, of joining with loads of voices. And I think the other thing that marked that time uh, for us in the UK was this feeling of unity um, of, of, you know, multi-denominational people coming together and um, and like, you know, doing their things with in one voice. You know, that was very much a, uh, um, a, a thing for us. Uh, and something that we, uh, you know, were, were attached ourselves to, you know. Fantastic. Another, yeah. um, I guess what part of what you brought to it, not all of it, but part of it were obviously the guitar parts and the sounds. Yeah. And it seemed to be yeah. a, a pushing, a stretching of perhaps some of the sounds that, that people were playing in their churches or in, in worship yeah. services. And that was obviously a big deal for you guys, the the sonic yeah. footprint. Now, Stu, you seem as equally happy creating really trippy and ambient stuff as you do just rocking out massive Les Paul Marshall tones. Um, yeah. <laughs> who, who who influenced you as, as a guitar player to, to have yeah. such a, uh, a diverse uh, spectrum of sounds and approaches going on? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm... I was lucky in some ways to have been born in the in the 60s, you know, and I remember seeing the Stones and the Beatles on top of the Pops and then, uh-huh. um, you know, as a kid and jumping up and down on my bed with a tennis racket, pretending it was a guitar, <laughs> you know. Yep. But um, it was really, I've, I've got so many influences, you know, I love music, guitar is my first love. Um, and so uh, it wasn't until I was 16, though, that I came across the Queen Live Killers record in a in a record shop and put the headphones on and, and listen to it, and that was a that was a hit a brick wall moment. You know that was a yeah. uh, you know turn the other way moment. I wanted to I totally wanted to be Brian May at that point. <laughs> so Brian May was a huge huge influence on me and my playing, and then um, at the same time you know there was uh, bands like Led Zeppelin and um, uh, Dave Gilmore with Pink Floyd. Um, uh, uh, those in particular, and then Rush with Alex Lifeson was a huge influence on my playing too. And um, you know, so like with with Alex Lifeson, you know, it starts to get a little bit more kind of like in the late years, like more more of the ambient stuff coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, you know, but at the same time, in the late '70s, early '80s, there was that whole new wave movement. So there was bands like The Clash and like XTC and like um, uh, The Police you know, mm-hmm. were a huge influence as well. Andy Summers, I think that, you know, so you, you've got choruses, flanges and delays going on at that point. And then um, um, Edge, uh, you know, I can't um, speak too much about, you know, the Edge and uh, and, and what an influence he's been um, over the years. And, you know, his work with Brian Eno in particular on, on the, the the albums that Daniel Lanois and Brian Eno have produced. Yeah. Um, you know that gets very kind of ambient and lush. So it's all 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 those influences start coming in. I'm and I'm starting to think like, oh, you know, you can do that on guitar. That's amazing. Um, and um, um, and then the other the the next kind of you know brick wall moment for me, um, U-turn moment was when I heard the Bends for the first time, um, the Radiohead album, the Bends. Yeah. And uh, and hearing Johnny Greenwood and then, you know, hearing what they did with um, OK Computer. And in fact, OK Computer came out and we were doing a HMV tour. So I remember picking that up on the day of release and playing it in the van with everyone and 
just being blown away. And that really influenced the direction of um, our Mesomorphic album um, and some of the some of the chord changes and uh, and the sounds that came on that. So, you know, a, a real host of uh, of influences, honestly, um, over the years. But um, that, those the, the names that I've mentioned are some of the main ones. Sure. Yeah. It's a pretty exciting time in music, isn't it? That that whole. Yeah. That whole era, far out. That's amazing. Yeah. When when you mention uh, Mesomorphous and, and Glow, that's um, yeah, that's a time where the production yeah got got bigger and broader and and more far reaching. One of my favourite moments yeah. on, I reckon maybe any Delirious guitar moment, uh, but off of that era is uh, the Hang On to You guitar solo. And yeah. um, in the in the studio version, anyway, there's it sounds like you're starting off on an octave fuzz, and then yep. halfway through, it just sounds like the guitar explodes, like on purpose. <laughs> the tone just kind right. of disintegrates. It's so euphoric, and then it comes back just at the end. It's it's wow. Yes, yeah, so I'd need to listen to that again to uh, remember that part. But the um, I know that you yes, it was octave fuzz, and it was. Um, uh, Zvex Octane uh, pedal. That um, I, so I had um, I'd been on a Smashing Pumpkins discovery uh, journey <laughs> and uh, was really into their tones and yeah. yeah and Billy Corgan's playing actually you know is is really phenomenal and uh, his his use of uh, of riffs and and sounds and things and so. Um, yeah, I, I got into um, through one of the producers that we were using, uh, Chuck Zwicky. Um, he was from Minneapolis, and uh, and so are Zvex pedals. And mm-hmm. so he brought a few down and and introduced me to uh, like the Woolly Mammoth and the, the Fuzz Factory and the uh-huh. Fuzz Probe and yeah. the Octane and stuff like that. So they they became staples on the you know for a while. Mm-hmm. I, I still have a um, I still have all those pedals, and uh, um, I still have fuzz pedals on my board now. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. In terms of um, yeah, the nineties. What what a time to be a guitar player in terms of pedals. That's yeah. super cool. That's right. Yeah, yeah, lots of great fuzz tones on those records from from you as yeah. well. Do you, thank you. When you're crafting tones, do do the tones inspire the parts or vice versa? So if I think of a song like Bliss, that the big riff. Yeah. That's a really distinct kind of guitar voice there. Yeah, like on the intro. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yes, yeah, so in Delirious, a lot of times, um, you know, I'd be experimenting with sound and then that, that sound would inspire the song. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't happen like that so much in 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 my world right now because... Um, you know, I'm often being sent uh, tracks to play on, so there's already an established kind of song. Yeah. And yeah. Um, you know, so the song happens before the parts. Um, so I'm just thinking about parts at that point, and uh, and and then the tone follows that. Um, but uh, in those uh, in the delirious years, you know, oftentimes I'd find I'd discover a certain sound, and I remember on that one in particular, um, I had a uh, a Digitech Talker pedal, which is a huge, <laughs> huge kind of uh, pyramid-shaped like pedal that um, uh, takes a microphone and um, 
uh, and you can, um, you know, it kind of copies the sound of a talk box, you know, and it has a couple of other settings on it that does it automatically. And um, and so I was messing around with that and came up with that riff and that, that sound on the Bliss intro was that talker pedal um, and my uh, Les Paul gold top and uh, uh, probably my tremor verb, uh, Mesa tremor verb. Uh-huh. Very cool. That yeah. is massive. It is larger than life, that tone. Yeah, and so many and so many of them. Um, yeah, like there's there's Ebo all over these tracks. There's Slide. Um, yeah, there's some electric twelve. So another string. thing, like with the another person that I was um, influenced by a lot was Phil Kagi, who's a guitar player here in Nashville, and um, you know he he became a good friend, and uh, so that he had several albums where the Ebo featured, and yeah. I was like, I wonder what that is, you know. So uh-huh. I investigated that and uh, got a. Got a, I got an Ebo with a cassette that kind of taught you how to use it. Yeah, it came know, with a cassette, and, um, that's right, and a little badge. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> and um, and so, you know, I experimented with that and, you know, found how to kind of roll the roll the treble off and kind of make yeah. it sound like a flute or, you know, like a cello and what have you. And so, yeah, um, the Ebo became a big part of what we did in Delirious with songs like um, Obsession yes, and, uh, yeah. and Find Me in the River and stuff like that. Yeah, super inspiring. I got an Ebo not long after that, I reckon. There was Robert Fripp yeah. and there was you. That's who I was listening to. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Not that Fripp used an Ebo, but he, he was into the sustainer thing, which is similar right, but different. Right, yeah. Yeah, gosh, I mean, that's an honour to be mentioned in the same uh, breath as uh, as Robert Fripp, that's for sure. Oh, totally, Stu. You've you've inspired, I think, so many guitar players in searching for tone and just you're playing your, your parts, definitely. So, 100%. That's amazing, thank you. Um, do you have a favourite Ebo guitar? Because certain guitars respond differently to Ebo. What, what was your go-to? Um, yeah, my go-to in the studio was uh, my telly, I think, my blue Mexican oh, telly okay. that wow. I used to have. Um, yeah. Um, but like you say, you know, you can uh, you, you can use it on any guitar. They just have a different point where it's where they start to work, you know. Sure. So, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a little bit different on a humbucker guitar than it is to a single coil. But, um, you know, it works on any, any guitar. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the the telly was my go-to. Um, nowadays, I use a Strat. Uh, my, I have a Strat that uh, is, is my go-to guitar for Ebo. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just because it's sitting there, and that's what I pick up first. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, when you moved to Nashville, did you yeah. did you eventually bring all your guitars over, or did you start again? Um, what happened in terms of all your stuff? Because you must have amassed a, a, a whole heap of gear. Yeah, I had a I had a bunch of gear, and you know I didn't want to lose the some of that stuff, you know, because uh, it held, holds sentimental value as much as anything, you know. Some of the guitars that I used on Delirious, like my Les Pauls and uh, my One Thirty Five, yeah, and uh, my Tele, you know. So I definitely didn't want to lose them. So yeah, I, I shipped them over, and uh, also my amps, um, shipped them over as well, and. Uh, yeah, they arrived pretty much unscathed, and uh, <laughs> um, that's what I'm using nowadays. Yeah, cool. What 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 are your main amps? Uh, so I um, so back in the day, there when Delirious was finishing, I was use, live. I was using a, a Park 
there was a 70s park combo uh that was a that was my favorite amp and then i was using a jmp50 from 1973 uh marshall uh with a four-wheel drive cabinet so i brought them over um i brought my mesa tremor verb over mm -hmm. um and uh what else i had a 62 ac30 that um i brought over and uh, a small little lamp which is a, like a little secret weapon for me which is a a wem westminster it's a 15 watt amp from the early 80s which is a great great little amp so that's all here and then but since i've um since i've been here you know i've, I've amassed a few more things and um uh one of my favorite things of the of the last year has been this benson amp that i've got it's a oh, okay, called yeah. a benson Mon monarch with reverb it's like an 18 watt uh one by 12 combo that just sounds amazing and um i've i've worked with um uh delana at third power amps and um so live i use a third power amp rig um and we made an amp called uh the majestic 40 uh, which is a 40 watt head uh -huh. that um, was kind of uh, inspired by my park. And uh, so, yeah, I use that on the road along with a, a more AC30 voiced amp. So yeah. I've always felt like um, I've always felt like a Vox and Marshall person. Yeah. Um, and uh, so live, that's, that's kind of like what my voice is. And um, over the years, I got into using two amps because I like the blend of the tones and then kind of by accident, you know, you discover that uh, if you use a stereo delay or something, you know, it widens it a bit. So like my, so if, you know, you, people see me with two amps and what have you, they immediately think I'm sort of stereo and it kind of it is if I put a stereo effect on it, but generally it's kind of just that I like the blend. Right. So it's more of a tonal thing rather than running yeah. wet dry or, Dual yeah, wet or yeah. Something. and yeah. the other thing, yeah, that's right. And the other thing was that, um, you know, Martin played a bit of guitar, but he was also the front man and lead singer. So it was a bit more of a, you know, U2 situation where like um, right, uh, yeah. my guitar was one of the main kind of yeah. sounds of the band. And so it needed to be big, yeah. you know, <laughs> it needed to be sort of front and center. So uh, that's another reason why uh yeah wh why we kind of ended up with the two amp thing yeah cool man and a vox and a marshall they you can't go wrong put those together that's that's a really nice yeah. mix of of things going on there yeah yeah and uh, over the years you know you turn up at some festival and they don't have a vox and a marshall and like you you can make anything work like i think you know you don't have to have your gear to sound like you you know uh-huh and when i've when i've when I've tried someone else's rig, for instance, I still sound like me, you know, and, yeah. uh, and, uh, there's a guitarist here called Michael Pope and, uh, you know, he comes over the studio every now and then, and I'm always blown away when he, uh, he plays through my rig or through an amp in the studio, or whatever. And I'm like, Oh man, I wish I sounded like that, you know? <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah. Well, one thing I've learned though, through, years of being in studios and making records and what have you is that uh you know the the cabinet 
uh, whether that's in a combo or whatever. I mean, it's such a huge part of the sound. We 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 kind of focus on the amps a lot, you know. Yeah. And uh, but um, you know, the I, I was talking with a guitarist called Jerry McPherson, who's a, a an amazing guitar player oh, yeah. and one of the kind of go-to guys in Nashville. Actually, and, uh, just to jump in, first time I ever saw him play was with Michael W. Smith because he toured right. with him for, for yeah. some time. Yeah. Yeah. No, anyway, that's right. Little little circle um, there. And, uh, yeah, we were both, like, talking about, I just said to him, you know, I think that the cabinet, like, plays as much of a sound, part of the sound of an amp than, uh, than the amp does as well, you know, and he's like, hundred percent like and he would go as far as to say it's like at least two thirds of the sound is the wow cabinet, okay you know, yeah the speaker right. you know so uh but yeah so just uh i love talking about all the gear stuff you know and um uh it's kind of real passion it's good to, good to be able to nerd out about it yeah good times now you've you've also yeah. um delved into the digital world as well i know yep. you've you've done some work with kemper what what yeah. place does that have in your work? Yeah, no, I mean, like, um, it was um, an opportunity to, um, you know, the. I don't think it's a conversation about, like, what is better and what isn't. That's up to the player, you know, um, and, and how things make you feel. Um, the, it's, uh, you know, the Kemper stuff and the Helix and Quad Cortex and fractal stuff you know they're tools to be used and there's a huge amount of players that are that are using them and so uh for me it was about well i don't want to get left behind in the conversation and then secondly um you know i wanted to uh, with the kemper in particular at the time was one of the only uh bits of kit that you could actually profile your your amp sound um on and so i thought well i want to like um you know, dive into this and, you know, perhaps sometimes that's going to help when I'm, when I've got to do a part at like midnight and I don't want to wake the house up, you know? Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but also as a, as a record of, of like tones over the years. And so, um, yeah, I work with a company called Tone Junkie TV, HW over there. And, uh, yeah, we've pretty much profiled every one of my amps and, uh, um, yeah, so I, I kind of create some presets. And and so the way I use it in my career as a guitar player is, uh, say, for instance, that we are going to do a Christmas show with Michael W. And uh, we're using a symphony orchestra. Um, you know, my um, having my, you know, 4 by 12 and part combo on stage is not going to work. Yeah, you know? sure. Uh, in terms of all the other acoustic instruments on stage. Yeah. And so um, I would rather use my Kemper in that situation than I would uh, using SGI boxes and running my amps into a, an isolation room, you know, 50 feet off the back of the stage or something. Okay. Um, it, uh, the, you know, at that point when you're not feeling the amps, they sound exactly the same to me. Yes. Plus you're in control yep. of your, of your tone because you're hearing your, your sound, your amp through your pre's and your microphones. Yeah. Um, you know, it's uh, it's different to standing in front of an amplifier, but it's so consistent um, and always the same. And um, and so that's when I use it when the environment uh, demands that I can't make any noise. Um, then I'll take my Kemper rack and not even think twice about it. You sure. Know? Um, 
Yeah. Or if we have to fly to somewhere and perhaps um, it might be a bit sketchy as to the quality of backline that, that we can that production can provide. You know, I'll take my um, my Kemper rig and the front of house loves it. Oh, uh, yeah, the I audience bet. don't you know, they don't know uh, any different. Yeah. Cool. So, it's a great yeah. solution. Um, Stuart, yeah, it it's been really good. It's been amazing talking to you. Um, thank you so much. It's been, uh, like I said, oh, yeah. I've, to, to have followed your work and then to dive into it is, is a great thrill. And I, I know, I know our listeners will be uh, will really enjoy the conversation too. Can I can I leave? Can we finish with one more question? Um, yes. What are some things worship musicians should should know about? That nothing comes without hard work and dedication. I think you know. Um, I think that, uh, you know, oftentimes in, when we're talking to church musicians and worship musicians, people on, on worship teams, you know, um, there's uh, there's conversations around gift and around character, you know, and I think that um, we should be working as hard on uh, on every area of, of what we do. And so, um, you know, to... to practice and be the best player and learn every thing you can about your instrument, you know, at the same time as you're kind of, um, you know, learning about, uh, discipleship and character and, and, you know, help, helping you in your life, you know, but, uh, you know, as a musician, um, I can, I'm only as, uh, as good as my experience lets me be. I can't, like just, I don't just want to um, sit down and robotically learn someone's parts on a song. I want to understand why that, why it works, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, you know what happens when your mind goes blank and you can't remember something is like you got to have something in your well, you know, yeah, to sure. uh, to 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 rely on and understand why. Um, why certain notes work together with with different chords and uh, and so that's why to this day i still practice my major scale uh in every position on the neck you know in, er- in every chord uh every chord bass and um yeah uh just to stay as familiar as i can with where i am on the fretboard yeah awesome that's a good mix of the the two the tools and and the heart of it so thank you for sharing that and um yes Stu, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today oh it's great mike great chatting with you and i hope it's been helpful for everyone i reckon it has (laughs) awesome (laughs) great well let let me know if you want to chat again all right there you go Stu gerard Stu G on the Guitar Speak podcast. I might take him up on that. I might let him know if we can chat again sometime. I love that conversation and um, yeah, amazing musician, really full on guitar guy, uh, sonic experimenter, and a worshipper on his instrument, which I love. All right, hey, coming up on the Guitar Speak podcast, of course, our midweek Iconic Albums series continues, which is going great. Last week, we looked at U2's Achtung Baby. This week, we are looking at Toto 4 and the amazing work of Steve Lukather. So look out for that one. You know, the best thing for the podcast is just to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you pod. 
and then you'll get these episodes delivered for free in your podcatcher thing. Hey, if you're enjoying the conversations, the interviews, and the iconic albums, why not share them through your social media networks or wherever? That really helps us get the word out. My thanks also to Joe Elliott and the Fretboard Biology team for sponsoring today's episode. Please check out the links in the show notes. All right, my name's Matt Wakeling. You've been listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. And you know, I got to speak to Michael Schenker once, and he told me... Keep rocking, keep on rocking. Keep on rocking indeed. All right, catch you next time. Bye now.